All right, so we're going to do chapter five, chapter five of Revelation. And to set this up, chapter four and chapter five go together. And they're, they're all part of the same scene. If you recall last week, um, John gets invited by Jesus to come into heaven. And so he gets there and he gets to see something pretty incredible. He gets to see God Almighty seated on his throne and he sees all that imagery surrounding the throne, the, the, the sea of crystal, the emerald rainbow. He gets to see the 24 elders worship him and cast their crowns before him. He sees the four living creatures and we'll begin to unpack those guys next week. But it's, it's a scene that, that's pretty incredible and it's a scene of incredible imagery, and we're going to see even more imagery this morning and into the weeks ahead, because that's what this book seems to be filled with, but it's really a worship service, and chapter five is going to continue that worship service, and if you were here last week, we sang holy, 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 because that's what they were singing, and that's something that's going on in heaven even now, uh, worshiping God Almighty, so that's how chapter four introduced itself to us. And now we're going to see the attention of God. You know, John is focused on God. He's riveted on God because he's the, the center figure of this whole scene in heaven. It's God on his throne. But now in chapter five, we're going to see a change. And so in verse one, here's how it goes. We're just going to read through this and kind of set the stage. Then I, John, saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, God Almighty, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look, to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to, re to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worship. So you see that there's, there's a kind of a shift of attention here as we get into this second part of the heavenly throne room scene. It's the same scene, same setting. John's been invited by Jesus Christ to come up into heaven and something is going to get his attention. Cause he says, then I saw, what's he see? Well, it's pretty amazing to think that 
if you're staring at God Almighty seated on his throne, that anything would get your attention. You know, what could get your attention off God Almighty? But there's something, and it's, it's pretty important because it's going to set up the whole rest of this book. And it's going to change the direction of the book because right now he's focused on God Almighty, but he sees this thing in God's right hand. Now, God's right hand is a position of power. It's the position of authority. He's holding whatever it is in his hand, and I think that's what gets John's attention. And John knows that that's the position of power and authority. It's something important in God's hands. Now, keep in mind, he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what it means. He just knows God's holding it, and it's a scroll. He describes it as a scroll, and the Greek word is biblion, and it really means small book. It's a small book that he's holding in his hand. Now, it's called a scroll because back then they didn't have books like this. They didn't have bound books. They had scrolls. They had parchment that was typically written on, and then they rolled it from both ends, met in the middle, and then it was typically sealed to keep it closed. And we're going to see this particular book has seven seals, and we'll discover the significance of that in a second. So it's a book. It's a document of some kind. Again, he has no idea what it is, what the content is, but he notices it, and he notices that it's written within and without. It's written on both sides, which was rare. You didn't typically write on both sides of the scroll. You wrote it on the inside, rolled it up, and it protected the content. But this has writing on both sides. It's full. It's spilling over. And then it's got seven seals, which again was kind of rare because why do you need seven seals on the scroll? Now a seal not only kept it closed, but it was typically used to signify that this came from somebody of significance. It, it was from a king, it was from a ruler, and it was sealed with his seal to let you know that this is official and it could only be opened by the right person. And so if that, once that seal was broken, the contents could be revealed. So this thing has seven seals. And so John knows it's official. It's super official. Again, what's seven? Seven biblically is a number of perfection. It's, it's a number of completeness. And so he sees this book, this little scroll with seven seals. And he knows if God's holding it, it's got to be significant. It's got to be important. And I think his curiosity is probably killing him. You know, what's in it? What is that thing? Why is he holding it? And, and really, the kind of the inference is he's holding it out as if somebody is supposed to take this thing. Now, there are a lot of, you know, images you can find on the Internet of what the scroll looked like. And most of them show a, a typical scroll rolled up with seven seals across the center. The problem with that is, as we are going to see as we unpack it next week, is that there seems to be more of a sequential nature to this thing. And so this is the only image I could find that remotely illustrates what I think the scroll may have looked like. Now, we don't know. But I think what's important is there's seven seals and they're sequential. In other words, you open one at a time. And when you open the first seal, you read the contents. And then there's a second seal that has to be broken to reveal the next content. It's not seven seals broken at once and then you unroll the thing. So it's sequential in nature. It's chronological in nature. Every seal has to be broken before you get to the next part. And that's going to be important as we get into the next chapter. Well, what is it? What is the scroll? This is another one of those fascinating um, places in the book of Revelation where if you start looking at the commentaries, you get all kinds of ideas. 
And I'm using at least six commentaries right now, and they all have different opinions. Some are the same, some are different. Here's some of the options given for what the scroll is at this point. Here, here's the first one. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. And they look into later on in chapter 21 where it's referenced, and they say this is, this is the Lamb's Book of Life. It's, it's the book where all of our names are written, those of us who are in Christ. Some say it's the Old Testament containing the blessings and curses as found in Deuteronomy and elsewhere. Some say it's the last will and testament centering on what we're going to get as the saints of God, our inheritance. Some say it's a bill of divorce. It's God's divorce statement against Israel, unfaithful Israel, and ultimately unfaithful mankind. Some say it's a contract deed containing the rightful property of Christ, that God is going to hand over to Christ everything that belongs to him. And then finally, it's a heavenly book containing God's redemptive plan. Here's the problem. We're going to find out what the book is. Why are we sitting here playing what I see as kind of a silly game? It, it, it's going to tell us. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation is God's got this thing in his hand. It's going to get opened by somebody and that's going to reveal the content. And so I don't know why so much time is spent and so much paper is wasted writing about what the content is when we're going to find out what the content is if we just keep going. So he's going to reveal, and we're going to find out it is Jesus who's going to reveal it. He's going to open it one seal at a time, and beginning in chapter 6 and moving on all the way through chapter 16, we're going to get to see what the content is. And in a sense, it's going to include all of those things we just looked at. It is blessings and curses, right? That's part of what Revelation is about. It's, it is kind of a divorce decree against the people of Israel because we're going to see the majority of the people of Israel are going to continue to reject God Almighty. So most of those things, if not all of them, are included, but the content is the content. It's what we're going to see as we begin to unpack it. But we do know this. There's so much in this scroll, written on this scroll, that it takes up both sides. There's a lot of information. And John can see that. And I think John, being a human being, is curious and wants to know what the content is. And he's especially curious because it's sealed seven times. It's, it's got an officialness to it. It's got this idea of perfection, completeness. Everything is there. Now we just need somebody to open it. And that's going to set up our problem. Because here's the next thing that happens. And we just read it. He says, I saw a mighty angel. Who is the angel? We have no idea. But there are those who will say, well, it's Gabriel. Well, it's Michael. Well, it's, we don't know. And I don't think it's important. Because again, that's not the point of the passage. The angel just simply says with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So here's the scene. John's standing before the throne. And he hears this angel, this powerful, mighty angel call out, who's worthy? Who's going to open the scroll? And no one, it says, in heaven on earth or under the earth can open the scroll. Now that word worthy should remind you of what we studied last week, right? Because we saw this idea that God was praised for his worthy, worthiness. Worthy are you. And it's that word axios, weight. Uh, he's got authority. He's got the strength, the power. He's deserving of worth because he is worthy. And so 
Who has the worth, who has the weight to open the scroll? And it's a question that goes out throughout heaven and there's, there's built into this thing kind of a waiting period of who's worthy. And you can imagine John sitting there going, he's looking around going, yeah, who's worthy? Who's gonna open this thing? He knows it's not him, but he's waiting. How long? I don't know. But the idea is, who is qualified by God's standards to come and open the scroll? Keep in mind, it's in God's right hand, position of power, position of authority. It's got seven seals, official document. It's in the hands of God. The inference is, it's written by God. Who is going to open this thing? And the suspense is killing him. And here's the answer. And this gets to John. No one. No one is worthy, no one has the weight, no one has the worth, no one has the value, no one meets the criteria to open the scroll. That's a pretty scary thing in John's mind. He's concerned because he knows inherently that this thing's important. He doesn't know what it contains. He doesn't know that it's the future of mankind and the future of the world and the, the decree about the end times. He doesn't know that at this point, but he does know it's important. And it says, no one in heaven, in the realm where he is at this moment, no one back on earth, no human being, and no one under the earth, which is an inference or a reference to the demonic world, no one is worthy to open the scroll. That's pretty all-inclusive, right? Nobody in heaven, nobody on earth, nobody under the earth, nobody. No one can open this thing. No, no angel, no man, no demon can, can step into God's throne room, take that thing from his hand. I think John probably wanted to. If Peter had been there, he would have. You know, Peter would have just grabbed it and opened it and probably been fried, but he wants it to be open because he knows it's important, but no one is there. And the important thing is, if no one can open it, guess what? Then the contents never get revealed. And that's a pretty serious thing because as we're gonna find out, the contents are critical to the future of mankind. They're critical for us as believers because they tell us what happens. And if it doesn't get open, it doesn't happen because the contents decree the end times. And so how does he react? He weeps, he's sad, he's shell-shocked, he, he can't believe it. And it says he breaks down and he begins to cry because no one was worthy. Now, I think John, being John and having been a disciple of John, and I think he was probably hoping that Jesus would show up because Jesus is the one who invited him. Why isn't Jesus stepping forward? But no one is stepping forward. Again, there's built into this some form of a delay, but he's broken and it says no one was able, and that carries the idea of no one had the power, nobody had the might, nobody had the chutzpah to step up and take this thing and do what needed to be done. They didn't have the right, and that's important, and they didn't have the right resources. They didn't qualify, and so he weeps. Nobody is worthy. But then he hears one of the 24 elders, who is he? I don't know. He's not important. His message is important. And he says, weep no more to John. Stop crying. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Stop crying. It's okay. There is somebody worthy. And he describes him as the lion of Judah. 
So stop crying. Stop weeping. And it reminds me of the story of Jesus' death, his burial, and when Mary showed up at the tomb, and there's this encounter at the tomb. It says, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stopped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, the other at the foot, of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she said. And I don't know where they've put him. What's her inference? She came to the tomb hoping to find Jesus's dead body. She wasn't looking for a resurrected Lord. She was looking for a dead body and he's not there. I don't know where he is. Where's his body? And she turned to leave and saw someone standing there and it was Jesus, but he didn't, she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, again, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? She wasn't looking for him. At least that version of him. She was looking for the dead version of him. And it goes on. She thought he was the gardener. Sir, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. I'll go get his body. And the, the, the deal with this is she came with these expectations of finding a dead Jesus and she meets the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. There's no need to cry. Everything's okay. And the same thing's true here because John is crying because he thinks nobody's worthy. Oh yeah, there's somebody worthy. And he's introduced to him. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the root of David. What's that talking about? What's going on here? Well, the lion is a symbol of power. It's regal. He's the king of the jungle. He's, he's got all kinds of inferences built into him. And it's true in this passage, but it comes from the Old Testament, a prophetic passage. And this is Jacob blessing his sons, and he's going to bless Judah. And listen to what he says. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter, the, the symbol of power and authority for the king, shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That word peoples there is inclusive of Gentiles. So this is a prophetic passage, whether Jacob knows it or not, he is prophesying over Judah who will become, from, from Judah will come David, from David will come Jesus, the Messiah. And so this is really speaking of Christ. So when the, the uh, elder says, behold, the lion of Judah, he is speaking of the messianic role of Christ. He's referring to Jesus. Well, what's the root of David? This is a reference to Isaiah. Over in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, again, another messianic passage, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. What's the stump of Jesse? Well, Jesse is the father of David. Jesse is where the lineage begins for the kings of Judah. And so it says he's a stump. Why is he a stump? Well, what do we know happened to the kings of Judah? Well, just like Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they rebelled against God. Israel gets put into captivity with Assyria hundreds of years later. The same thing happens to Judah, except it's Babylon, and you see an end to the Davidic dynasty. Dynasty. They stop. There's no more kings. There's no one sitting on the throne. To this day, there's no king of David sitting on the throne in Israel. It's a stump. And yet, out of that stump, 
a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Verse 10 says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations, again, all inclusive, Gentiles and Jews, shall inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. This is speaking of, again, Jesus, who came from Jesse through David, who's the Messiah, who will rule, who will reign, the nations will be attracted to him, both Gentiles and Jews. And so what we're seeing is that he's introduced, behold, the lamb, or not the lamb, but the lion and the root. He's the Messiah. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. He's a descendant of David. This elder is telling him, stop crying because I'm going to introduce you to the one who's worthy. He's a descendant of David. He's the heir to the throne of David. Is he on the throne of David right now? No, but he will be. And that's the point of this book. That's what we're going to find out. He's the Lion of Judah and everything that goes with that. He's fierce. He's powerful. He's to be feared, but he's also protective of his own. He's, he carries weight. He carries significance. He's the root of David. He's the source of all things. Even though it was a stump, guess what? Out of it is going to grow this incredible tree. Nothing will stop it. And from him comes all fruit. Everything comes from Christ. And so he gets introduced as these two things. And yet, here's the thing that's important, because he's going to get a visual representation that's distinctly different from these two things. See, these two titles describe what? Who he is. He's the lion. He's the root. That's his character. That's kind of his qualities. But what's really important in this passage, this entire chapter, is what he has done and what he's going to do. But the emphasis in chapter five is really on what has he done? What makes him worthy? And that's why it goes on in verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as what? As though it had been slain. So he gets introduced, John gets introduced to this character with two descriptions, but when he turns to look, what does he see? He sees a lamb. Not just any lamb, but a particular type of lamb. And the word in the Greek is, is a word that refers to a little lamb. It's like a baby lamb. It's a young lamb. And it's a picture of the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, and you can read it, it talks about the kind of lamb that had to be chosen. It had to be a young lamb, a little lamb. And every family was to select a lamb from their flock and they were to bring it in and they were to protect it and raise it and care for it. And it had to be what? Perfect, unblemished. Now you can imagine, and I think it's true then as it would be now, if, if when my kids were young, if I had handpicked a lamb and brought it into our home and cared for it and taken care of it, my kids would have gotten really close to it. And yet at some point, I'm going to have to sacrifice it. I'm going to have to take its life. And my kids would cry and they would be upset because of what I'm doing to the lamb they had grown close to. And that's the picture here. It's this little lamb that's almost like a pet. And yet it tells us that it's standing, which, okay, that makes sense. It's standing, but what's the point? Well, it's standing as though slain. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? It should be. Because he's standing, he's alive, he's well, he's got life and breath, 
And that's important because the picture is of a paschal lamb, a sacrificial lamb. He's alive. He's well. But he appears as though he's been slain. I don't know what that means. I don't know what he looked like. I don't know if he had blood on its, his coat. I don't know if his throat was slit. I don't know what's going on. But John sees him standing. But something about this lamb makes him look like he's been slain. And what's really interesting is that word in the Greek means slaughtered, butchered. So something about this lamb is contradictory. He's alive, he's well, he's standing, but he looks as though slain. And it reminds me of the story of after Jesus' resurrection, when he began to appear to the disciples, and the disciples go and tell Doubting Thomas, and this is how he got that nickname. They said, hey, we've seen Jesus. Um, I don't, I'm not sure I believe that. Unless I stick my fingers in the holes in his hands and in his feet, I'm not going to believe. Guess who shows up? Jesus. Guess what he says to Doubting Thomas? Hey, bring it on. Here you go. Stick your fingers in here. And Doubting Thomas Instead, does what? He believes. You're him. You're the Messiah. So this idea that he's alive, but he looks as though slaughtered. He's been butchered. And it goes back to Isaiah 53, that messianic chapter in Isaiah that says, he, Jesus, was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. See, what's interesting is that when he turns and he sees and he's standing between God Almighty on the throne and those 24 elders and the four living creatures, he sees this lamb. He doesn't see a lion. He doesn't see a majestic tree that started as a root. He sees a lamb that looks as if it's been slaughtered. What's the question that began this chapter? Who's worthy? Who's worthy? And this is the answer. It's this lamb. In that condition, in that manifestation, it's he who's worthy. And he has seven horns, we're told. Seven horns and seven eyes. How weird is that? How strange is that? What's the significance? Well, again, seven being perfection, completeness, helps us understand it. Horns are always a symbol of power in the Old Testament. And so he's got power, perfect power, unlimited power. He's a lamb, a little lamb with unlimited power. Do you see the contradiction? It's exactly what the disciples struggled with when they heard Jesus say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be tried. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put to death, but I'm going to raise again three days later. And all they heard was the dead part. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand that contradiction. Wait, you're the king. You're the Messiah. You shouldn't have to die. You shouldn't have to be put to death. You shouldn't have to be slaughtered. Oh, yes, he had to be. Because that's what makes him worthy. That's what makes all of this work. But he's got power. Perfect power. He's got those seven eyes, which the passage tells us are the seven spirits. It's symbolic of the Spirit of God, which tells us that he's all pervasive. See, when Jesus Christ went back to heaven, who did he send? The Holy Spirit. Where did the Holy Spirit come to dwell? In you and in me. And everywhere we go, we take the Holy Spirit with us. And that's a scary thought to think about when you think about some of the places you go and some of the things you look at, but he's with you. But see, the idea is that when Jesus left and he sits at the right hand of the Father, the Spirit is his presence here on earth through us, through the church. 
So he's pervasive. He's everywhere, perfectly pervasive in every area of the world and growing more so over time as more people come to faith. So he's this lamb. And the lamb, it says, took the scroll. How did he take the scroll? I don't have a clue. Lambs have hooves. Did he take it in his mouth? Maybe. I don't know. But see, that's not the point. The point is somebody needs to be worthy. He's been told someone is worthy, and it's this lamb. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures, then 24 elders fell down before who? The lamb. Who had they been falling down before? God Almighty. Now they turn their attention, and they begin to worship the lamb. See, it, it puts... Jesus Christ and God, the Father, on equal footing. He is God. He's part of the Trinity. He's deserving of praise. He's deserving of all the same things that God's deserving of. And it says that each of the 24 elders, and really the way the Greek is worded, is it's the elders who have the harps and the golden bowls, and they begin to worship. They worship with a harp. They worship with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, so what, what does this mean? What, what's going on here? Well, a harp, interestingly enough, we, we, we always think of a harp as being um, somebody sitting on a cloud playing a harp in heaven, which is the image that kept me from wanting to go to heaven most of my childhood years. She's like, really? That does not sound like fun f to me for eternity. However eternity, how long eternity is, I don't want to be playing a harp. I didn't even like practicing the piano. But see, that's not the image here. The image is one of prophecy. Is the harp used for worship? Yes, but it's really a prophecy. Here's a couple of passages. 1 Samuel 10, 5. This is the prophet speaking to Saul, the newly appointed king of Israel. You will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. So the harp was used in the process of prophesying. We also have from 1 Chronicles 25, David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and Heman and Judithan, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. So these elders have these harps and they're worshiping Jesus, the lamb, and they're prophesying. We're not told what they're saying, but it's symbolic of what's going to be revealed in this book. We're going to see prophecy. We're going to see the future of the end times. What's going to happen? They've got these golden bowls. What are those? Well, we're told they're full of incense. Incense was used in worship in the temple. And it was a symbol of the priestly intercession. So you couldn't just go in before God. The priest had to do it for you. You couldn't offer your own sacrifice. The priest had to do it for you. But they're holding these bowls and they contain the prayers of the saints. Now think about that for a second. We read these and we just kind of blow past them. Okay, great. They got the prayers of the saints. What do saints typically pray? What do you typically pray to God? Well, if you boil it all down to just the basics, here's what we typically pray. Deliverance. When do we pray for deliverance? When we can't deliver ourselves. Like when we get into the deep weeds and we just, we've run out of tricks up our sleeve and we go, God save me and I'll go to the mission field. God save me and I'll read the Bible. God save me and I'll witness for you. We pray for deliverance. We pray for mercy. God have mercy on me. I screwed up again. I'm sorry. Have mercy. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for peace for us, for our families, our home, our nation. We pray for healing. We pray for restoration. We pray for a lot of things, but all those prayers go into these bowls. God collects them. 
and they're, we're told they're incense. They, they're a sweet aroma to God. Think about how you view your own prayers. Most of us think our prayers stink. They never make it past the ceiling because God never seems to answer them. When we cry out, he doesn't respond. And we devalue our prayers. But God takes every prayer you pray, and it's like incense. It's a sweet aroma. And he's collecting the prayers of the saints. And it reminds me of the passage in Exodus where God tells Moses, I've heard the affliction. I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cries. And guess what? I'm going to step in. See, God hears our cries. He's heard the cries of every believer since Pentecost. And he's, he's listening and he hears us. And we're even going to see in the book of Revelation, there are going to be people coming to faith in Christ during the tribulation and they're calling out to him. How long? How long? And he's going to say, I hear you. Be patient. I'm going to do something. Trust me. But see, they're, they're worshiping in, in, in their hands are these golden bowls full of our prayers as we wait for all these things to happen, as we wait for the return of Christ. And what do they say as they worship him? They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. See, they understand, and John is learning that this individual, the lamb, who's standing as though slain, he is worthy. Why? And this is important. The word for means because, basically. Here's the reason. You were slain. Why is he worthy to take the scroll? Not because he's a lion, not because he's of the root of Jesse. He is worthy because he was slain. He did what he was told to do. He was obedient even unto death. He did God's will. And it was by his blood. He ransomed. He paid for us. He bought us out of slavery to sin and set us free. And he made us a people for, for God from, and this is important, from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. You see, it goes back to that idea. It's all inclusive. It's not just the Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles all over the world have been paid for by the blood of the lamb. He is the one who's worthy because of what he's done. And he's made of them a kingdom. He's taken you and I, and he's made us a kingdom. Now, we are part of the kingdom of God right now, right? That kingdom is not on earth. It's in, on earth only in the form that we're citizens of the kingdom. But Jesus Christ is not sitting on a throne here on earth. He's not ruling in Jerusalem. He's still in heaven. But the day is coming, and this book's going to show us that it's going to come, and he's going to bring his rule to earth in all its righteousness and all its glory. But in the meantime, he's made us a kingdom and he's done it by his blood. Hebrews 2, 14, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. He became like you and me for only as a human being could he die and only by dying could he break the power of the devil. Remember what we read earlier on? He's got the keys of death and Hades. He's already done the breaking. He's already defeated the devil. The devil's still here. He's still alive and well. He's still doing his thing, but he's defeated already. He had the power of death, but he no longer does. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. I don't have to fear death anymore. Neither do you, because we know what comes next. 
David told the Colossian believers, he, Jesus, disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Can you imagine the glee on the part of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees as they watched Jesus die? I, I can imagine them. If they high-fived back then, they were high-fiving. He's dead, finally. I think the demons had a little victory party. They thought they had won, but they hadn't. Jesus put them to shame because he rose again. Why is he worthy? Because of what he's done. Because what have he, he's accomplished. He's made us a kingdom of priests. And then he says, they shall reign. We're getting a picture here of present reality. We are already part of the kingdom. If you die right now, you get to go be with him. It's done. It's accomplished. You don't need to fear what comes next. But here's the cool thing. Here's the future hope. We're going to reign on the earth. We're going to come back. We're going to reign with him. We're, we're, gonna, we're going to have a future with him. See, he's trying to tell John through these elders as they worship the lamb, here's what's going to happen. You're already a kingdom, but that kingdom is coming to earth and you shall reign with him. There's something more coming. And what do they say? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. See, it's his slainness, if that's a word. It's his death that makes him worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He's worthy. No one else is worthy. What makes him worthy is what he's done, his sacrificial death on the cross. And then most of this should be very familiar because it's words used of God. We saw it in chapter 4. And one of these words is, he's worthy to receive, to take what is rightfully his. It's not what you give him. You don't make Jesus worthy. Jesus is already worthy. What you do is recognize his worthiness. He died, he rose again, and he's coming again. He's worthy to take the scroll. And then we have power. He's got that power that resides in him by virtue of who he is. Remember, he's got seven horns. He's the slain lamb with seven horns. He's got riches, is what this word means in the Greek. Fullness, completeness, everything comes from him. And we're enriched by him. He says he has wisdom, supreme intelligence. Jesus Christ is on the same level with God Almighty in terms of his wisdom, in terms of his might. That word has to do with forcefulness. And it carries the idea of holding something. He's grasping something. He's got you in his hand and he's never going to let you go. He's got it all under control. He's deserving of honor. Why? Because he's honorable by virtue of who he is, his rank. He's standing right there with God, being worshiped like God by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. So he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of glory. Again, it's where we get doxology something that only belongs to God. It doesn't belong to your car. It doesn't belong to your bass boat. It doesn't belong to anyone or anything on this earth. It belongs only to him. Magnificence, majesty, and then blessing. He's deserving of to receive back what's already his blessing. Eulogia. It's where we get the word eulogy. If you've been to a funeral, you've heard people praise and laud and glory somebody who's dead but we're praising and glorying in somebody who's alive and well, the lamb as though slain. And he deserves our blessing. He deserves our recognition of who he is. And then he says, I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea. This should remind us of what? 
What happened when the, the angel said, who's worthy? Nobody. On earth, in heaven, or under the earth. Now it gets expanded. And it says, I heard every creature in those three places, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, that adds a little twist, and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. Isn't that interesting? It's this picture of all inclusivity of everybody, including the demons, are going to glory in him. Is that happening right now? Do you really think any demons are in, in, you know, below the earth or on the earth or anywhere glorying in him? No, but they will. This doesn't mean they're going to worship him, but they're going to recognize him for who he is. And so is every person on this planet. Not all will worship him, but they will all acknowledge Jesus for who he is, and they will worship him, and they will acknowledge his might, his dominion. See, that word is, that got so much power in it, and we just think it's a synonym for power. But it's, it's power put into action. It's power on display. It's dominion. See, if you're a king and you don't have a kingdom, you don't really have any way to show your power. If, if you're in exile and you don't have a kingdom, you have no power. But this king is going to have dominion for how long? It tells us forever and ever. How long is forever and ever? I have no idea. It's a long time. It's eternity. It never ends. And how do they react? What do they say? And I love this because this word is so abused in Christianity today. It's so misused. They say, amen. We don't say amen, right? It's awkward. I, I've never taught and heard any of you guys say amen. Don't say it right now. But what do they say? What's their response? They say, amen. And that word means let it happen. So be it. I want his dominion to reign forever and ever. Lord, let it happen today. May it be fulfilled. See, that ought to be on every one of our lips every day. Yes, come back right now. Set up your kingdom. Let's do this thing. Come back and get your church. I'm ready. But see, the sad thing is many of us are like, well, now's not a good time. I, I'm going on vacation in a week. I'm going to Cabo. Lord, just can you wait? I remember my dad, you know, when I would hear my dad say, yay, Lord Jesus come. He said it all the time. And it drove me crazy as a kid because I'm a young kid, 12, 13. And I'm like, I haven't had sex yet. <laughs> dad, you're an old fart. Come on. You've had your chance. No, Jesus, don't come back. But you know what? I'm ready. I want him to come back. I say, Amen. So here's your first question. Why don't we shout amen to that? Why aren't we like the 24 elders and everybody in heaven on earth and under the earth? Why aren't we saying amen? Come back when we hear that the lamb is going to set up his kingdom forever and ever. We should want that. I don't know about you, but every time I turn on the TV, every time I listen to the radio, every time I look on the internet and I see the news, I want to shout amen. Come on back. I am so ready because this place stinks. And I'm looking forward to this place. Second question, this passage tells us that God collects the tears of his saints and views them as incense, a sweet smelling aroma. What would you say is our typical pers perspective regarding our prayers? I already told you, many of us think they stink. 
they don't mean much. What should they mean? Every time you pray. See, prayer is the greatest expression of dependence. Because when you pray, it means you need him. It's when we don't pray that we show our pride and our arrogance. Finally, why do you think it's so significant that Jesus is deemed worthy? What if he wasn't? What if Jesus hadn't died? What if Jesus had said, you know what? I'm not putting up with this. I'm not going to hang on a cross for these people. But see, he's worthy. Why is that significant for you and I? So let me pray for you and then you guys get at it. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage. Father, may we walk away from here ready to shout throughout the day, throughout our lives, amen. Let it be. May it be fulfilled today. Lord, come back. And I pray that you would come back today and that you'd take us to be with you and that we could see this thing wrapped up and that we could see this world perfected the way you meant it to be perfected, Father. But in the meantime, may we keep our eyes focused on you and what you're going to do, what you've done and what you're going to do, because you're not done yet. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.